Well, really good to see all of you here this morning, and for all of you who are joining us online, we are so thankful for the opportunity of being able to gather together in Jesus' name. And so if you want to find your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and as you do that, I'd like for you to imagine that this week you go out on a hike, and uh, you're kind of taking the nature all in, and it's pretty beautiful, and you come across a stream, and you're like, whoa, wait, something is drastically wrong. You know, everything had been going good, and you'd been taking it all in, and all of a sudden you find this stream, and it's, it's filled with trash. I mean, like, what in the world? It's like somebody had just dumped all this garbage and cans and bottles, and, and there's plastic stuff everywhere and gunk, and there's a film on the water, and you're like, this is atrocious. This would be beautiful apart from all the trash around here, and you're like so bothered by it. You decide, you know what? I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just clean some of this up because I like this to be a place that I could enjoy. And so what happens is you start spending several hours and you kind of make a pretty decent dent in this area of collected garbage. And so then you're, uh, you're like, you know, I'm going to have to come back here to finish this off, but this is worth it. In fact, it looks so much better. Well, the next day you show back up and you're appalled by what you see. In fact, there seems like the garbage has bred. It's multiplied. And you're like, what? What's going on? Is somebody just literally coming in here and just dumping trash right here in the stream? Like, wait a second. It's only been a few hours. No, wait, something's not right. And you start thinking, you know, I wonder what's happening upstream. So you follow that stream, and what you discover is that this particular stream runs right through an old garbage dump, and it's picking up the trash, and that's where it's all coming from. And I tell you this because our hearts can be like a garbage dump. And unless they are transformed, at best all we can do is try to pick up some of the litter that's floated downstream. And really that is so much of the human experience that we're like, whoa, I got all these problems and these difficulties. I need to clean up my act. In fact, we refer to it as such, right? I need to, I need to treat my spouse a little bit better or fix this little problem or whatever. And you, what you're doing is you're just trying to pick up a little bit of garbage here. And you think that that's going to fix it. And lo and behold, it might help for a week or two. But guess what? You have not dealt with the source of the problem, your heart. And that's what needs to take place. If you and I are going to thrive, God has to do heart transformation in our hearts. And that's exactly what happened with the Thessalonians. As we've been looking at chapter 1, looking at a thriving church, the Thessalonians didn't just uh, pick up a few Christian principles and try to drop a few bad habits. No, what happened with them is they literally came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They entered into relationship with the one true living God and their lives were changed. The garbage dump of their heart was being addressed and hence their lives were looking very differently, so profoundly that they were talking about it throughout the Roman Empire that God was doing something amazing in their lives. And what are believers in a thriving church known for? If you want to be a thriving individual and you want to see Fellowship Bible Church continue to thrive, this is our text. We're going to see what believers in a thriving church are known for. And the first thing is we are known for what we have left. Take a look at it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. 
where it says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. So Paul reminds them when he came to them. Now, if you think that Paul was just kind of like on this tour and everything was great and he just showed up in the Thessalon- with the Thessalonians and, and uh, things had gone well the place before and so he was expecting some other good results. If you have ever read the book of Acts, you know that that was not the case. In Acts chapter 16, you find that when Paul was in Philippi, he was beaten and then he was imprisoned and yet God worked in some amazingly mighty ways. It's after having been beaten and having been imprisoned, when he was set free, the very next place that he went, Acts chapter 17, he went to Thessalonica, this place. In fact, if you want to see that, what that reception looks like, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 2, it says this, and according to Paul's custom, when he shows up in Thessalonica, he, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He wasn't just like telling, hey, I'm gonna, I've got some ideas to how to improve your life. He talked to them from the word of God, from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I'm, I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. They didn't show up and say, hey, listen, we want you to have a different idea about Jesus and like him too. Uh, we've got some hints and some tips on how you can have a better life. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the bold declaration of the gospel that you and I have a sin problem. We are alienated from God and God, because of his great love, has sent to us Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. He lived a perfect life. He demonstrated his deity. He went to a cross to pay for our sins, and he rose again, demonstrating to the world that he is the one true God. That's what they declared, and they did it from the word. Anything less than that is not biblical Christianity. And so Paul is saying, hey, you remember the time we came to you, our reception that we had, and notice what the text says, that you turned to God from idols. That word turning, uh, sometimes you find its related term repentance. It means to change 180 degrees. They didn't just change their mind about Jesus, like, oh, I guess Jesus is pretty cool. Uh, sure, like to be a friend of Jesus, okay? No, they changed allegiances. They went from idols to serve and to know the one true living God. You see, most of the Roman Empire, they were involved in paganism. They had lots of gods. They were involved in polytheism. They had oftentimes these little statues that they had venerated and treated as little deities. Now, the, the intellects in the Roman Empire saw more of all these little idols, these little statues of these Roman Greek gods, more as representative. But for the most people, the, the common folk, they kind of thought that, no, these are the gods, and they were venerated, they were held in high esteem, they were worshipped and prayed to. And most of these idols were in the form of a person, 
sometimes animals, but, but especially in the area of Thessalonica, they would be in the form of the Greek Roman gods. You're familiar with them, having already studied those in junior high. And what they would do is they'd have these like figurines of them. And mind you, Thessalonica is about 50 miles away from Mount Olympus, where that was where it was believed that all these gods lived. And their polytheism, the worship of more than one god, this was not just personal, it was corporate. And you'll find that their social, their political, and their religious life revolved around their paganism, their worship of these false gods. But in Thessalonica, and you'll see really a lot of aspects of this throughout the Roman Empire, it wasn't just they had their little deities that were all believing, they thought, living kind of on Mount Olympus, but they also had the ruler cult where the Roman rulers were seen as divine. It all gets started with Caesar Augustus and Thessalonica. They actually had a temple that was built to honor Caesar Augustus and his successors. And so this was all part of how they lived. Paganism, multiple gods, worshiping them. These little idols and these statues, it's just a way of life. It's their culture. This is how you live. But you see, they discovered and they found out and recognized that they were enslaved to idols who simply couldn't fulfill their lives. They had this God-shaped void in their life, but idols couldn't ever fulfill. Furthermore, they could never forgive. They couldn't release them from the penalty of sin and all of the guilt and shame that you and I all have because we all have a conscience that's given us by God, that never went away. That's because idols could never address sin. And furthermore, they found that their idols could never make them free. They were enslaved. They were captured. And when Paul shows up and he proclaims Jesus, they turn from those idols and they believed in the one true living God. Now, John Calvin, the great reformer, said, our hearts, our heart is an idol factory. I mean, we will manufacture idols out of anything. Now, I'm not really worried about you or the people in our country bowing down to some sort of, you know, $3 figurine that they picked up at a garage sale or something that's porcelain that they found in their grandmother's attic, and they're going to set that up and find that to be their source of hope, joy, peace, and happiness. But I want you to know that idolatry is very prevalent in our culture. An idol, an idol is anything that supplants the place of God. It is any attitude, belief, any little G-O-D that you find your sense of personal affirmation, your identity, your sense of hope, peace. It's what you yearn for. It's what you turn to. If it's not the one true God, it's an idol. And everybody has counterfeit gods that seem to surface in their life. And they're drawn to. There's a guy by the name of David Foster Wallace, uh, an American intellect and author. Um, In 2008, at the very prime of his life and really at the top of his career, he committed suicide and took his life. But he gave a very famous graduation address in 2005. It's referred to as the Kenyan Commencement Address. And I, this man... Though not a believer in Christ, 
He understood the prevalence of idolatry and the worship of idols in people's lives. And I want you to listen to just a brief piece of his commencement address. He said, quote, to the graduating class, because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Friends, it's kind of like what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 14. We create idols of the heart, and it's prevalent. Let me just give you some of the contemporary idols that are out there. So you've got false religion and rituals everywhere. You have folks that make idols out of their career or in making money, idols out of achievement or status and social standing. You can make idols out of romantic relationships, right? Oh, if I can just get this one person, they'll really love me. Everything will be fine, right? That's like the Hallmark movie channel right there, you know? And it's, and it's prevalent, and lots of people think that. Um, peer approval, image, competence and skill, secure in comfortable circumstances. If I can just have that, everything will be fine, right? You can make an idol out of your beauty or your brains or some great political or social cause. In our country, we have race and culture idolatry. It's kind of like the idea that Your life doesn't really have meaning unless your race, your political party, your country is recognized as superior. And anyone that will not align with your position, your values, you know what you do? You know what you do. You cancel them, right? We're done. I'm ending you. That's it. And so we find racism and nationalism at a militant uh, phase. You've got ethnic pride, and all of this turns to a very bitter sense of oppressiveness and prejudice. You can have sexual idolatry, and this is so incredibly prevalent in our society. You've got addictions to, like, pornography You've got immoral and and just completely improper relationships, and they almost become a way of life. Just after the first service, I had a guy, and he was telling me that he just found out why his aunt is just destroyed. It's because he found out that his uncle has two families. Friends, I want you to know, like an idol, like pornography, you think, that, oh, I'm gonna, that's going to help, and that'll give me a sense of peace, and at least I feel well or liked or appreciated or accepted. But what does it do to you? It twists you and contorts you and fills you with all sorts of guilt and shame, and you almost become 
unrecognizable. And then, of course, there's idols of spirituality apart from a scriptural basis. You know, because we are so devoid of biblical Christianity, what's happened is in this huge vacuum, there's still this, man, I, I need to connect with God. So we have spirituality, but now we've got new age spiritual directors and psychics that are all stepping into place. This is growing more and more prevalent in our country. In fact, the spiritual need is so great, and there's the, like we can't produce enough psychics to step in and to tell you kind of what you want and throw some things out there. And I mean, we're talking smart people will spend good money to hear a bunch of garbage. Why? Because it becomes an idol in their life. And then, of course, there's syncretism. This is you pick and choose what you're going to have in terms of spirituality. After all, you're an American. It's all about the individual. So don't have like, well, the Bible is the bottom line or whatever it says. No, 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 no. You get to pick and choose what you want. So if you, you can pick whatever you want in the Bible. You like the God is love? That works well. Pick that one, right? But you also think like reincarnation is really cool. Yeah, I like that. And you maybe pick up this particular Hindu God and maybe this force here. And you're like, oh, but you know what? Candles and stained glass, you know, from my Christian tradition, oh, that means so much to me. And so I want to have a lot of that stuff. And you put it all together in a package and you call that your spirituality, I want you to know what it really is. It's your idolatry. Friends, I mean, you can make an idol out of your entertainment, out of gambling, out of your drinking habits. This is where it's going to get me through. Or your illegal drugs. Know this, idols are never I-D-L-E. They're never idol. Idols are never idle. They always call to you. Keep coming back to me. I'll, I'll help you. And you've seen this. And this isn't just an adult problem. Guess what? Guess where this gets started? It gets started really early, like with kids. Because they got to like, man, I need value. I need acceptance. And so you got to find out what you're really, really good at, right? And whether it be music or drama, it could be academics, it could be sports, and and it could be like, where are my social standing and how many likes do I have? And I mean, literally, their kids are just like, does anybody love me? You know, and like, how many likes can I get on this? You know, and their whole sense of value for the hour is wrapped up in this. I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor, uh, on one occasion, I was meeting with one of our student leaders, great kid. Um, I mean, I loved him. He had a lot of influence. He was also a leader at a school, and he happened to be one of the stars on the basketball team, and they were very successful. But on this one particular occasion, when we're hanging out in my office, uh, we had a serious problem that we had to address, and that is the star basketball player was failing at a school at a point where he would not even be eligible to even play. And so we're talking about this and having a nice heart-to-heart conversation. And I'll never forget when he looked me in the eyes and he said, Grant, basketball means everything to me. And he was like, I mean, like, you know, like intense. Talking about all the strokes that he felt. He loved it when all the screams and cheers and people coming up to him, especially like even parents and adults, you know, it's all the big pats on the back. And it was like everything revolved about basketball. He said, I can't stop thinking about it. I want you to know that hoops had a heavy hold on his heart. I want you to know this, that anything has, can be an idol 
and everything has been an idol. And I, I also, and maybe you've experienced this, and I've seen this many times, counterfeit gods always disappoint and oftentimes in rather destructive ways. Remember the financial crisis that we had in 2008, 2009? I read of a Korean businessman who killed himself after losing most of a $370 million investment. His wife told the police, quote, when the nation's stock market index fell below 1,000, he stopped eating, went on a drinking binge for days, and finally decided to kill himself. Several years ago, I talked with a guy who was, I would say, very successful in his career, but he told me that he would go anywhere and do pretty much anything if they would pay him more. His philosophy of life was simply this. It's all about the money. Whoever's paying more, whatever sacrifices that I need to make or changes, that's all right, because it's all about the money. And you might be surprised how many people, and especially men, find their sense of identity and security and well-being in their jobs. It explains why it, it doesn't matter how many hours this is going to take. I am going to be there. If some things have to be jettisoned and sacrificed for me to get the CEO or that executive position, I'm going to do it. It is why I am always there. It drives them. It owns them. And, you know, you can make an idol out of some really good stuff. Like virtue, or your family. You know, that could become an idol. Or even success in Christian ministry. If you think, well, you know, pastors and missionaries and those involved in vocational Christian ministry, why, they're exempt from idolatry, you would be mistaken. Years ago, a good friend of mine, I'm not going to give his name, but some of you would recognize him, He's a pastor of a very large church. He told me, my ministry had become my mistress. That's where he found his sense of identity and strokes. I'll tell you what, that's pretty twisted, isn't it? When you're a pastor of a church, but your ministry is your mistress. It's your idol. And he was telling me this because he had a significant health failure. And he almost lost his life. If he wouldn't have had his heart attack in the gym, but had it at the beach the previous day where he was, he'd have been dead and gone. He had to make some changes. He had an idol in his life. I will tell you that a life not filled with God is probably filled with idols. A life not filled with God is probably filled with idols. And when good things become little God things, little G-O-D things, you've got yourself an idolatry problem. Remember Augustine, he said this, you know, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. Isn't that the case? If If you're not really resting in God and the reality of knowing Jesus... You're restless. It explains so much of your behavior. And our fears and our inner barrenness, they, they cause us to, to make 
idols out of like love and, and power and success and greed and lust. We crave these things. We become like an addict needing a fix. And we just keep going back to these idols and we're disappointed when they don't fulfill. And yet we just keep going back to it. We think like, well, next time or this time or whatever. Or I remember one time. And friends, what happens is when you take even good things and they exceed the proper boundaries, you'll be able to, you will forsake any friendship. You will uh, disregard uh, others. You will rationalize your, what you're doing. It'll kind of make sense. You'll betray an allegiance because if you are an idolater, you are a slave to your idol. And for the Thessalonians, you know what happened? They realized that that was their situation. They had been enslaved to these idols and they turned from them. They turned from their idols. And friends, that's what a thriving church is known for. It's known for what we leave behind. But furthermore, it's also known for what we are living for. They didn't just like, well, we got to leave our idols and like, we forsake this and then kind of live in this vacuum of emptiness and nothing. No. What did they do? They turned to serve a living and true God. They were living for their relationship with Christ. It was Christ that filled them. You see, they were filled with his love, and they were actually filled with his spirit, and it changed how they lived. They went from pursuing a life of having idolatry, try to quote-unquote meet their needs, and living in a culture where that was the practice, to now they were aligned completely with Jesus Christ, and they were worshiping him. And what happens is you find that whenever you have true salvation, people who truly come to know Christ, you have a change of orientation. This whole idea, like you just add Jesus to your life and you keep moving forward, like you've been inoculated, that's not biblical Christianity if your life isn't beginning to experience transformation that comes from his spirit, his word, and his people. That's what has happened with their lives. They began to serve a living God, not one of these false, impotent, dead idols, and one that was true, not one of their counterfeits. And the word serve is a really strong word. It's actually a word that's, that's used for like slavery. But it was because they were so overwhelmed by God's love for them, they had a willingness to serve. It wasn't seen even as optional. It was more like, we get to. What a love. We've been freed. We now know the truth, and we're willing to serve. You know, in that same financial crisis, I read of a guy by the name of Bill. Three years prior to the crisis of 2008 and 2009, Bill had placed his faith in Christ and had been, become a Christian. And when that financial crisis hit, and he also took a huge hit, this is what he said, quote, if this economic meltdown had happened more than three years ago, well, I don't know how I would have faced it, how I would have even kept going. Today, I can tell you honestly, I've never been happier in my life. Why? For the love of Christ controls us. Remember this, devotion determines direction. Whoever or whatever you're devoted to, that determines the direction of your life. And for us, it's the love of Christ. To be in relationship with him, 
leads us to a place where we want to serve him. And when we serve, you know what happens? God brings joy because we're living as God designed us for one of the major reasons why he saved us. But furthermore, when we serve, there is growth that takes place in our life. Spiritually, we, we're get, we get stretched. We apply truths. We put us, we're put, put in situations where God has to come through and we grow spiritually. But furthermore, not only do we grow, but when you and I serve, guess what? The people around us grow. They benefit. And that at fellowship, we describe this natural, supernatural process as the pathway of growing in grace. And unless you're new here, this shouldn't be unfamiliar. It all starts with begin. You begin a relationship with Christ. You turn from idols, and you put your faith in the one true living God. You believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But then as you begin, you get established, where you start sinking roots in knowing who God is, your faith in Christ, his word. And just like a little tree, a little sapling, as you sink roots, guess what? You start reaching out, branching out. But there's a third major step of development, and that's when you come to a place where you're willing to serve. You realize, hey, this isn't just about me and all the benefits and blessings. This is an opportunity for me to be used by God to serve him and to serve others. And then that final step is when you multiply, when you are making disciples, you are a disciple maker. But I want you to understand how important serving is because that's what a thriving church is known for. Not just what you've left behind, but what you are living for. And what were they living for? What does the text say? To live to serve a living and true God. So let me just give you a few keys to serving. First of all, you will serve when you are believing in his love and his call on your life. When you really are resting in that reality and you realize God's called me, you have a willingness to serve. Let me give you another. When you're seeing yourself as a savior-centered servant, it changes your entire perspective. If you become like the Thessalonians, see yourself as a savior-centered servant. Now, I want you to know, this is going to take humility on your part. You're going to have to settle that lordship issue. But when you do, guess what? There'll be a willingness to serve. And finally, investing in opportunities that God gives you to glorify him. Believing in his love, investing or seeing yourself as a savior-centered servant, and investing in opportunities that God gives you. You'll use your time, your treasure, your talents. Why? Because you've entered into a relationship with the living God, and you are living for him. What is the thriving church known for? It's known for what we leave behind, what we are living for, and also for what we are looking forward to. What were they waiting for? Well, you don't have to guess. Look at verse 10. They were and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. To wait is to look forward to the occurrence, the arrival of. It is an eager and certain expectation. And that's what they were doing. They were waiting for Jesus to come back. You will find that uh, at the end of every single chapter in the book of First Thessalonians, there is a reference to the second coming of Christ. I know that most people do not talk about Jesus returning. 
I, I'm, I'm still waiting to see it in a newspaper anywhere. Never found it. In fact, most Christians never even reference a second coming of Christ. Why? Because most Christians think that, well, Jesus is here just to help them have their best life yet, right? And they're, Jesus returning? Like, why, why would he do that? That's not, I, I don't talk about things like that. And yet, it is essential to true biblical Christianity. You see, Jesus rising from the dead demonstrates his deity. And the fact that he uses his, his human name, Jesus, is showing us that indeed this one is God. And he has come back from the dead and he has promised to return. And when he says, rescue us from the wrath to come, this isn't the tribulations that they're going through. And they're going through some difficulties. And you can read about it in the book. But it's to be rescued from God's future wrath where he is going to bring judgment upon the world. And so just for you to understand, the next major uh, point in God's program, the next major event is the return of Jesus Christ. You can read about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. What's going to happen is that Christ is going to come in the air. Those who know Christ are going to be captured up with him. It's referred to as the rapture. They're literally going to be rescued because God is, for seven years, going to pour out wrath upon this world. And it's going to kind of ramp up. It's going to get really bad in the last three and a half years. But God is going to bring judgment upon all disobedience. He is going to uphold all justice. And then finally, you will see, like in Revelation chapter 19, Christ is going to return to the earth. He is going to bring the church. And then there is this thousand-year reign of Christ, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. This is what is going to happen. And what Paul is saying is that you are waiting with a certainty for the return of Jesus Christ. And how do you wait? You wait by serving the king of kings. You see, God is going to bring judgment upon this earth. In fact, nothing of this succinct review of what God did in their lives would make any sense unless God has a wrath, a just wrath. I mean, think of it. If there is uh, no reality of future judgment, then why would you turn from idols to the Lord? Why is there a need for heaven if there is no hell? Why did Christ die and need to be raised? Why? Because God wants to save us from the judgment of his wrath. That's why he sent Jesus who died in our place. As John presented it, like in John chapter 3, verse 36, he said this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. See that? Belief and obedience, they're used synonymously. If you do not believe or obey Jesus Christ, he's not Lord of your life, you are still under God's judgment and wrath. But if you have put all of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, you have eternal life and he will save you from the wrath that is to come. You see, those who love Christ, they're looking for his return. And you're like, okay, whoa, wait a second. 
Well, what is that going to look like? Remember when after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples. In fact, he appeared to more than 500 others. It says in Acts chapter 1, you remember when he ascended into heaven and these angels are like watching the disciples and they're like watching Jesus literally going up into the clouds and they're saying, hey guys, what are you doing? They said, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, he will come in just the same way as you've watched him go to heaven. You saw him go, ascend and go into these clouds. Guess what? He's going to come just the same way. And it should be no surprise, that's how the book of Revelation begins. The book of Revelation, speaking of the return of Jesus Christ, you know how it begins? Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Are things on earth bad? Is it a mess? Do we have all sorts of injustice? Are things not going the way they should be? And are they getting worse? Yes. Is God going to do anything about this? Is he going to right every wrong? Is he going to establish absolute justice? Is he going to address the problems of humanity? Absolutely. And we are looking to him. He's our confidence. He's our hope. He's our peace because he is God. This is more, this return of Jesus Christ is more than a doctrine like, oh, check, I'm Orthodox, got that one. This is a dynamic of our life. We are living and looking for his return. You've likely heard, you know, this statement, you know, well, you don't want to be one of those Christians that's so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. You ever heard that? I'll tell you this. Those who are the most heavenly minded are the most earthly good. Why? Because their whole life, hope, present, past, and future is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And that's why they'll serve. They'll set aside whatever little rights. They'll put another's interest before their own. They are serving the king of kings because they've not only been saved by him, they are looking for his return. And when people do this and when a church does this, guess what? We thrive. Devotion determines direction. What are your next steps? What is God calling you to do? You see, we thrive when we leave behind the old idols. We're living to serve and love the one true living God, and we're looking for his return. And this morning, I'd like to have you hear from one of our people in Fellowship Bible Church who really emulates this so well. I'm going to invite Jennifer Abels. Uh, if you would just join me here on stage. I think many of you know Jennifer. Um, she works with our Livewire ministry. And Jennifer, I'm going to have you stand right here on this black dot here, okay? And I will stand here. Thanks so much for being with us. And so I would just like to ask you just a little bit, like, how did you become a Christian? Like, did you grow up in a Christian home? Can you just tell us a little bit, like, how you became a Christian? I'm going to go off script here real quick. And I just want to say thank you so much for you preaching solid truth to us. I mean, we are so fortunate as a church 
Um, you hear a lot of crazy doctrine out there, but I just wanted to say thank you so much because I was here for the first service and it was really good, but then you hear it again and you just hear a different passion each time that you hear it. And I think that's just God's word. So thank you. Thank you, Jim. Even my 20 year old daughter says you're my homie. <laughs> so, um, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. But, um, so no, I did not, um, grow up in a, a Christian household, um, I was abandoned by my mom when I was three months old, and then again by my dad when I was seven. And he was very, very abusive, so um, I knew what abandonment looked like. I knew what um, disappointment looked like. And then um, um, when I was in seventh grade, I got to see somebody with really long, gorgeous hair who um, later became my boyfriend when I was 16, who later became my husband um, much later. And, um, I found the one person who probably had a worse childhood than mine. And, um, by all, by all accounts, we were considered lost causes. Um, if you were to look at it statistically, but then, um, God had a, he, he had something very different planned. Um, uh, he moved in a pastor across the street from us and he was able to build a bridge with my husband and, um, and he invited us to church, and our life was truly never the same again. Um, we were home. We just we knew that it was home from the moment we walked in, and didn't really have a whole lot of expectation, just because, again, we had both been let down by the people that were supposed to build us up, the people that were supposed to... Um, that we were supposed to rely on. So we really had no expectation of what God was going to do, but what was really cool is they have, there was this one song called Amazing Love that we listened to. And, um, it just, you know, the more that you hear certain things, the more that it just speaks to you. And one of the way that it goes is amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? And for me, I was just like, but I'm a lost cause. But God said, no, you're not. Um, Wow, this is weird. I didn't cry the first service. Um, but my husband, he grew in the word, which inspired me to grow in the word. And then now you get to see, I have a 20-year-old daughter who is thriving in the word. And um, I have somebody else that, in, you know, my son, he isn't in the word. But we believe by our testimony and just by God's word that his life is going to be changed eventually. And we later adopted two amazing kids who are eventually, um, I believe God's going to use them in amazing ways as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, God, he's just so faithful. Um, we, for people who had no expectation of what God was going to do, he just continues to show his faithfulness and his love to us in just amazing ways. So, Jennifer, you are our head leader of all of our live wires. Our fifth and sixth graders, we call them live wires for very obvious reasons. Um, and I'd just like to know, like, what moves you to invest and to serve like this? What, what causes that? Um, I think for me, um, it's knowing that age group. Um, they need... They're... They're affected by the world around them in very, very different ways. And um, I just believe that when I'm in the Word, I'm studying, I'm growing in God's Word, I can give back to them 
to see them in the class and they're volunteering um, to 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 answer questions, you know, in front of their friends. And um, we have Bible challenges and they want to win. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that they're asking questions. And then you get to hear reports from parents that are saying, oh, we talked about this. Um, it's just, it's, it's, you don't get to see the fruit of your labor very often, but when you do, it's, how can you not be filled with joy with yeah. what's God, what God is doing? Yeah. You know, speaking of joy, how has serving really led to joy and growth in your life? Um, again, it's, you know, you get to be in the word. You're changed by the word. You know what it's like to not have um, God in your life and to know that side of it and then to know that God is so faithful and he is, um, it's it's undescribable what um what God can do. And that just brings so much joy, especially, you know, I'm hearing you preach and just listening to, to scripture. You're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're excited. Um, and you want to go out and you want to affect the whole world around us. Cause I don't believe that our testimony is just supposed to stay here. I believe that our testimony is supposed to be spoken. Lives are supposed to be changed because people need to hear what God has done in our life. And that brings joy. That's awesome. Well, Jennifer, I, I want you to know we're so thankful for you, and thank you for sharing with us. Could we actually give Jennifer just an appreciation here? Thank you. Um, I, we'd like to close in prayer, and I'd like you to join me up here in prayer. Okay, so let's, let's do that. Lord.